chapter 65. What is the Lord's response to this, to these good and intense prayers? I was available to those who did not inquire of me. I was accessible to those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, I am here to a nation that did not invoke my name. Now the Lord doesn't respond by saying, well, you didn't inquire of me. I was here and you didn't seek for me. He didn't personalize it. He just said, I was available to those who did not inquire of me. I was accessible to those who did not seek me. The ones who went in the Exodus did inquire of the Lord. We've seen that over and over. They inquire of the Lord and he answers them. They sought him, they found him, but some of them didn't. This group didn't. And so it takes them longer to be saved. When was he available and accessible? He was available and accessible when the Lord's servant performed his mission. Because the Lord's servant, his job was to bring people into God's presence, like Moses, to prepare the people to meet God. God was available and accessible. They could have come into his presence as individuals at that time. But the servant is long gone. He and those who went into the Exodus are somewhere under God's protection, wandering in the wilderness that blossoms, eventually ending up in Zion or Jerusalem, where they build the temple and where God comes. But this group is kind of left in outer darkness, like the five foolish virgins. They didn't go into the marriage supper to see the Lord, to welcome him. They're out there in outer darkness, first wailing and weeping and gnashing their teeth, and then coming around to repentance. That's what they've been doing here. They've been wailing and weeping and gnashing their teeth, accusing God, but eventually recognizing that the problem was with themselves, not with God. And when the Lord says, here I am, or I'm here, means that they could have come into his presence then, at that period of time, as these other individuals did and continue to do. To a nation that did not invoke my name, in other words, most of the people did not. It was the nation across the board that didn't seek after him and inquire of him. They did not pray, call upon God, or take hold of him or invoke his name. Invoking of his name brings people into God's presence. That's what the high priest did in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. He pronounced the name of the Lord and the Lord would appear. As a person is led further and further through the refining process, they eventually learn the Lord's name and call upon him literally and see him face to face as Moses did, or as the 70 elders did upon the mount, and as other prophets of God have done down through the ages. In God's name is salvation. If they call upon him, they're invoking his name for the sake of their salvation and those over whom they have stewardship, their wives, their children, their families, their relatives. That's what the Lord's servants in Isaiah do. As it says in chapter 63, Relent for the sake of thy servants. Those servants were saviors on Mount Zion, as it were, to God's people, to those over whom they have stewardship or to those to whom they ministered. When a person invokes the name of the Lord, he does so not just for himself, but on behalf of others. Verse 2, I held out my hands all the day to a defined people who walk in ways that are not good, following their own imagination. The holding out of the hands is again two individuals. Yes, God is welcoming them into his arms, as it were. He's beckoning them to come. But at the same time, the hands are metaphors, describing the Lord's servant on the one hand and the king of Assyria on the other. Deliverance is offered them through the servant, deliverance in the name of the Lord, or punishment and destruction through the instrumentality of the king of Assyria. Those were the two options, deliverance or destruction, or deliverance or bondage. This group finds themselves in a less than desirable situation under the power of the king of Assyria. 
I held out my hands all the day to a defiant people. They were not just ignoring God, they were actually defiant. Defying Him, rejecting Him outright, like it says in chapter 1. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel. Perhaps most of that group who were defiant are now destroyed, but those left alive are having second thoughts about being defiant. Who walk in ways that are not good, in other words, not the ways of God, and not good also means not of the covenant. Good is a covenant term. So, some other way than God's way, some other way than keeping covenant with the Lord. Because keeping covenant with the Lord is a good way, is the right way, the only way, that will bring them into God's presence. Following their own imagination, or their own idea of what was right, or good for them, or what constituted the true religion, or whatever form it may have taken, they were duped in some way. And the imaginations of the heart is one of the forms of idolatry that Moses describes. One has to be very careful that one's lifestyle conforms to what God lays down, not what we ourselves think. In the book of Judges, it talks about people after Moses and Joshua beginning to do every man what was right in his own eyes. And it didn't add the part about following their own imagination, but that's the next step. What was involved here? Verse 3, a people who constantly provoked me to my face sacrificing in parks, making smoke upon bricks, who sit in sepulchres, spend nights in hideouts, who eat swine's flesh, their bowls full of polluted broth. So there's ritualistic or cult manifestations here. That could just mean something quite harmless, maybe. You'd say harmless. Like uh, weekenders and their barbecues up in the mountains or in the parks, canyons. Or it could be actual satanic cult, like we saw in chapter 57, where they burn with lust among the oaks, under every burgeoning tree, slayers of children in the gullies, under the crags of rocks. Whatever degree it is, it is a provocation of the Lord. They provoke Him to His face. It is a substitute for true religion, or the true conduct that God expects of His people. He expects them to be peculiar people. To be sanctified means to be set apart, consecrated to God and to the things of God and not to be doing like the rest of the world does. They're a chosen people, chosen to serve Him, to minister in His name. Making smoke upon bricks, that could be just your regular barbecue out there in the backyard even. Or it could take more ritualistic forms. Eating swine's flesh, that was against the law of Moses, because kosher meat was of animals that divided the hoof and chewed the cud. Dividing of the hoof symbolizing the choice between right and wrong, or good and evil. And the chewing of the cud, assimilating the good. Swine don't chew the cud. This also implies not just literal eating of pork, but also, in a more spiritual, intellectual sense, swallowing whole philosophies of men, or false religion, or false teachings, and things that would take them away from the things of God, from the pure religion. Sitting in sepulchres, spending nights in hideouts, that's bizarre behavior, so this is uh, bordering on satanic cultism who think, keep your distance. That's what they say to those who do observe the ways of God. Keep your distance from me. Don't come near me, I'm holier than thou. So even while they themselves are more wicked and more perverse in their activities, they still think themselves better than the people of God. Now it doesn't necessarily say that these people to whom the Lord is speaking were that. Some of them may have been, have come all the way back from that, but This was the tenor of the activity of the people in general, the nation that rejects him. Things get that bad in 
God's people by the time the judgment comes. And you see that today. Lady in class was just saying the other day, she works as a librarian and many of the youth come and want books on satanic cult rituals and magic and things like that. It's coming to that. And maybe it's already here. Then the Lord says, Such are smoke to my nostrils, a fire smoldering all the day long. Like at the dump, where there's a fire and the garbage pit, there's an evil smell that just goes on and on and on. And that's how these people are to the Lord. An abomination. All the day long is also the day of judgment, signifying that these people don't repent. For a sixth seed is written before me, in other words, it's a decree, that I will not be still till I have paid back into their bosom their own iniquities and their fathers alike, says the Lord. To those who kindle sacrifice in the mountains, who affront me on the hills, I will measure out in their laps the payment that has occurred. Now, this I will not be still has been mentioned before. On the one hand, it had to do with the establishment of Zion, of Jerusalem, and of the Lord's kingdom and all its glory, and the building of the temple, and so forth. But that has to do with the deliverance of the righteous their salvation, their exaltation. But on the other hand, here the Lord is not going to be still until he sees to the destruction of the wicked. Again, the twofold nature of his coming is the deliverance of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked. I will not be still till I have paid back into their bosom their own iniquities and their fathers alike. They're not repenting, they're going on in their iniquities. Iniquities are getting worse from generation to generation till their iniquity is full. As it says in the scriptures, when the iniquity of a people is full, when they've come full circle to wickedness, the Lord intervenes and destroys them, just like he destroyed the people of Sodom and Gomorrah when their iniquity was full, or the Canaanites when their iniquity was full, or the Israelites when their iniquities was full. Till I've paid back into their bosom and their own iniquities and their fathers alike, because the iniquities of the fathers were cumulative upon the heads of the children. And in this generation they're full, says the Lord. To those who kindle sacrifice in the mountains, you affront me on the hills. The kindling of sacrifices, or performing these rituals, whether it's a so-called innocent barbecue, or whether it's satanic cult, it's an affront to the Lord. They're seeking a false or counterfeit paradise out there. It's not God's way. They should be busy with the things of God serving Him, and not just leading some kind of free lifestyle and thinking that God is going to be there for them when they need Him. He says, I will measure out in their laps the payment that has accrued. In other words, justice, covenant curses. It has accrued over several generations. There's no mercy for this group because they don't repent. There's only mercy for the group that repents. That's the whole nature of the atonement of Jesus Christ. If people don't repent, then they remain under the law of justice and must suffer for their sins. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as when there is juice in a cluster of grapes, and someone says, don't destroy it, it is still good, so will I do on behalf of my servants by not destroying everything. I will extract offspring out of Jacob and out of Judah, heirs of my mountains. Again, using imagery out of life, the harvesting of the grapes, when the grapes are pressed and the juice comes out, maybe not all the grapes are destroyed. Maybe there are still some parts of the bunch that are still juicy, the remaining grapes. They were not all pressed down. And someone says, Don't throw that piece away there. It still has some juice in it. Those grapes could be eaten. Because the grape harvest, as we saw in chapter 63, was part of the judgment imagery. The storm imagery is the judgment imagery, but so is the harvest imagery, whether the reaping 
or this, the picking of the fruit or the treading of the grapes. It's all imagery that describes the harvest of the earth, the harvest of the wicked when the wicked are destroyed and trampled down in the grape vat. But not everything is destroyed. The destruction is not total or the whole earth would be under a curse. But some come under blessing. Don't destroy it, it's still good. Good is a synonym of covenant. So that means that those who are not destroyed are the ones who keep covenant with the Lord. Don't destroy it, it is still good. So will I do on behalf of my servants, or for the sake of my servants, by not destroying everything. Which shows that the mission of these servants, or their role or function, is to be saviors of others. To be proxies, as King Hezekiah was for his people, in delivering his people from destruction. These servants assume the function of King Hezekiah, who was a son and servant of the Lord. These are also sons and servants of the Lord. These are people who have come out of the Zion category to a higher level and are functioning as mediators with God on behalf of their people. In the pattern of the Davidic servant or the Davidic king, King Hezekiah or the Latter-day Servant. These are Isaiah's equivalent of the 144,000 servants who do that in the book of Revelation. Remember, John sees 144,000 servants, and he also sees an innumerable multitude that were sanctified and cleansed and purified. The 144,000 are the saviors of that numberless multitude, in an end-time scenario, that is, on the earth. They go out and they minister the law of the covenant to the people out there, like Abraham did. In a cursed situation, when the famine came upon the land, Abraham came into the promised land that the Lord gave him and brought 300 souls that he'd won or converted with him. That's what these servants do. If every one of the 144,000 servants brought 300 souls with him, then we'll have the kind of proportions that Isaiah is talking about, a tenth of the tenth of the earth's population, of sanctified ones, of ones who are not destroyed, ones who are still good, who are keeping covenant with the Lord. I will extract offspring... Again, the extraction process implies the refining process, too, because you're squeezed out. It's a birth, just like you're squeezed out of the womb. I'll accept offspring out of Jacob and out of Judah, heirs of my mouth. This is the Jacob-Israel category, which Judah is also part of that. Jacob, Judah, Israel, and Isaiah is a category. They're going to be extracted out of that category and go to a higher category, the Zion-Jerusalem category. Offspring implies descendants. It's a covenant blessing to have seed or offspring. This offspring is parallel with the heirs of his mountains or nations. In other words, they receive an inheritance in the promised land, or promised lands in this case, because they inherit the nations. Their offspring inherits the nations, as we saw earlier in Isaiah. After the destruction, as they spread and multiply, they eventually cover the whole earth. The whole earth becomes a promised land for the covenant people of the Lord, by the end of the millennium anyway. I will extract offspring out of Jacob, and out of Judah, heirs of my mountains. My chosen ones shall inherit them, my servants shall dwell there. Here the servants is parallel with the chosen ones, which denotes their special status. They inherit twofold. They're the ones who receive not only their own inheritance, but they also receive the priesthood. They minister in the priesthood and they receive the office of ruler or kings over other people because they're on a higher spiritual level. They're above the Zion-Jerusalem level. My chosen ones shall inherit them, that is the mountains or the nations. My servants shall dwell there on the earth. Sharon shall become pasture for flocks, the valley of Achor, a resting place 
for the herds of my people who seek me, not for the people who don't seek him. He has these little qualifiers all over the place to let you know that it's just an elect group. We can't just assume that because we claim God is our God that we're part of this group. He gives us all these little qualifiers to let us know what we need to be doing to qualify. He starts right off doing that in chapter 1, taking care of the needy, standing up for the oppressed, pleading the cause of the widow. goes on all the way through, letting you know that it's only the holy ones, the valiant ones, the ones who wait for him, the ones who call upon him day and night, all of that, the ones who seek him, the ones who knock, only those ones are going to inherit lands in the millennium. And it is a rural economy, again. Pasture for flocks, a resting place for the herds. It's a peaceful pastoral scene. Sharon was the plain in Israel, and of course, there's many plains in the world. We could just say any plain, really, in the Promised Land. It doesn't need to be just in Palestine, because these people are going to become heirs of his mountains, or his nations, all over the world. Verse 11, As for you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who spread tables for luck, and pour mixed wines for fortune, I will destine you to the sword, all of you shall succumb to the slaughter. For when I called, you did not respond, when I spoke, you would not give heed. You did what was evil in my eyes, you chose to do what was not my will. He draws a contrast between the holy ones, or between the chosen or servants, and those who are theirs, those to whom they minister, for whom they are proxies and saviors, after the pattern of King Hezekiah, in concert with the Lord's servant, the one servant. They're all doing the same kind of thing. They're contrasted with these other kind, the ones who are lowest on the scale. And basically you have only those three groups, the servant category, the Zion, Jerusalem category, the one that inherits the land in the millennium, and then this category that's destroyed. Why are they destroyed? Because they forsake the Lord and forget His holy mountain or His holy nation. They don't care about God's people. They're just the same as anybody else, basically heathen. They spread tables for luck and pour mixed wines for fortune and to gambling. Maybe there are the people who frequent the casinos in Las Vegas. They're into wine and partying and gambling. I will destine you to the sword. All of you shall succumb to the slaughter. The sword and the slaughter in parallel. The sword is a metaphor describing the king of Assyria. He's the fire and the sword that destroys the wicked. They're given into the power of the king of Assyria to their destruction, not just to be oppressed, but to be destroyed by him, to the slaughter. The slaughter is a term used in chapter 34 of the beasts of Edom. They represent those who sell their birthright for a mess of pottage. They're all slaughtered like the beasts of Edom. The huge slaughter of beasts or the Day of Judgment is likened to a huge slaughter of all these animals all at once. When I called, when I spoke, when did he call and speak and they didn't respond or would not give heed? Through his servant, through the servant that is sent. The Lord calls his people to repentance. He calls them to renew their allegiance to him. The Lord speaks through the servant. He's called the Lord's mouth, his lips, his voice to the people. God gives revelation through the servant and they don't respond, they don't care. They don't give heed. They rejected God. And not just through the one servant, but through all of his servants. You did what was evil in my eyes. You chose to do what was not my will. Evil means covenant breaking. They chose to do what was evil. In other words, they willfully chose it. They were not just born into a situation and didn't know any better. They were given the choice, and they made their choice. Because evil, or covenant breaking, is parallel with not his will means that his will is to keep covenant with the Lord, or to do good. It implies that. 
And then we see this huge dichotomy between the righteous and the wicked. As we go through these chapters in these last part of the book of Isaiah, this dichotomy emerges so clearly, so dramatically, of the righteous on the one hand and the wicked on the other hand. The great spiritual polarization. In fact, because of the extreme forms of wickedness that exists at that time, that enables the righteous to rise to new spiritual heights. They have to deal with that. And if there's opposition, dealing with the opposition makes them stronger, and God empowers them against the opposition when they call upon him for help. So the empowerment of the servants or of the righteous happens almost, you might say, in direct proportion to the degree of wickedness that's out there, to the degree of opposition that they receive. Therefore, thus says my Lord Jehovah, or the Lord, My servants shall eat indeed while you shall hunger. My servants shall drink indeed while you shall thirst. My servants shall rejoice indeed while you shall be dismayed. My servants shall shout indeed for gladness of heart while you shall cry out with heartbreak, howling from brokenness of spirit. Wow. This is very much like Malachi saying, Then shall you discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him who serves God and him who does not serve God. The righteous are those who serve him. But that's a technical term. The servants is not just those who serve him in some kind of mysterious or vague way. It's a technical term that implies that these are vassals. These are sons and servants of God after the vassal pattern to a suzerain or an emperor. They keep the terms of the covenant of the emperor. They're proxies for their people. They answer to the emperor for the transgressions of the disloyalties of the people. And they take them upon themselves like King Hezekiah did. And they suffer for the sake of their people. That's why these servants are such important instruments in that day. If there were not these servants, people themselves might not be able to lift themselves up to a stage where they could be saved. But certain individuals who are valiant go ahead and progress up the ladder. And part of their progression is to minister down to those lower than them. And so doing as they minister to them, both ascend up the ladder. The one goes from being Israel or Jacob or Judah to the Zion-Jerusalem level. And the one goes from the Zion-Jerusalem level to the servant-son level. And the one goes from the servant-son level to the seraph level. These servants are proxies. Remember that. They're proxies for of people. They are temporal saviors. They merit the physical deliverance of God's people or a number of God's people. Just like Abraham did for those 300 souls whom he delivered physically from the famine, from starvation, and brought into the promised land with him. My servants shall eat indeed, that's covenant blessing. While you shall hunger, that's covenant curse. The consequences of covenant keeping and of covenant breaking. But eating and drinking is also spiritual in the book of Isaiah. They eat not just physical food, but also spiritual food. And these guys also hunger not just from physical food, but also from spiritual food. My servant shall drink indeed while you shall thirst. My servant shall rejoice indeed while you shall be dismayed. When do people rejoice in the book of Isaiah? They rejoice in those songs of salvation when God finally comes and they rejoice in his presence and they rejoice at their deliverance because the majority of people will have been destroyed out of the earth. Here are a few left survivors of a dark age living into the millennium. Wouldn't you rejoice? My servants shall rejoice indeed, while you shall be dismayed. Because you see that it's all over for you. You see, you didn't care, you didn't make it, you chose wrong. 
And here are the consequences now, face to face. You didn't believe that they would happen, and finally they actually happened to you. Wouldn't you be disappointed? Like the five foolish virgins, who were the people of God. They were virgins, they were not harlots. But they just didn't get their act together. They were dismayed. All the more so the wicked, those who don't repent at all. The idolaters are dismayed when their false gods don't help them, when their gold and silver wasn't any good to them in that time. My servants shall shout indeed for gladness of heart. They'll totally exult. What is the most spontaneous expression, spiritual expression, after you've gone through all the gambit of life? In the book of Psalms, it's praise. That's what the Psalms are called. In Hebrew, they're called tehillim, which means praises. There's every form of spiritual expression in the book of Psalms, but the one that the song ends up with very often after the person goes through all of the spiritual trials of life is spontaneous joy and praise of God. They shall shout indeed for gladness of heart, while you shall cry out with heartbreak, howling from brokenness of spirit. Maybe you won't even be here. Maybe you won't even be around here. In the next world, you'll be howling down there in the spirit prison, in Sheol, in hell. That's not the point where it is. The fact is that it does happen, because you lost everything. You sold your birthright. Your name shall be left to serve my chosen ones as a curse, and my Lord Jehovah slays you. Like the people of Sodom. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think of? Immorality, perversion, wickedness in the extreme. It's a curse. The name Sodom and Gomorrah is a curse. And that's the name these people are going to have. Some name like that. Identifying a group of people whose iniquity was full, who refused to repent, whom there was really no hope. And they go down to the next world in that condition. Your name shall be left to serve my chosen ones as a curse when my Lord Jehovah slays you, but his servants he will call by a different name or a new name. That new name is the one that they receive as they ascend the spiritual ladder. So these servants and sons themselves, after they perform that ministry to God's people, they ascend a level up the spiritual ladder. Every time you ascend the ladder, you're given a new name. Jacob Israel is one level, Jerusalem Zion is another level. Servant and son, each has his own individual name. And then Seraphim, there's a new name there again. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the stone that is given and the name that a person is given. It happens when they become Seraphim. His servants he will call by a different name. Those of them who invoke blessings on themselves in the earth shall do so by the true God, and those of them who swear oaths in the earth shall do so by the God of truth, or the true God. The troubles of the past shall be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. There are those who are praying to God for a blessing, for a particular cause, for something that has arisen in their particular situation that needs attention, that needs some kind of special blessing or divine intervention. They're doing that, and that's great. That's part of what it means to be a servant and son. Upon themselves or upon others too, not just upon themselves individually, but upon themselves as a family or as a nation or as a clan, or as a group of people, shall do so by the true God or by the God of truth, meaning that in the past it hasn't been so. They were maybe invoking blessings by some false god, some statue or some misconcept of God, and so they were not getting the answer to their prayers because they weren't praying to the right God or they were praying to a false concept of God. One of the most important things to do is to get a clear concept of the attributes of God so that you know who you worship and what you worship, so that your worship and your prayers can be effectual. 
so that your intercession with God on behalf of your children or your wife or grandma, whatever, can be effective. Those of them who swear oaths in the earth, and that's legitimate, you can do that. You can make covenants and oaths with God, for example, and keep them and obtain even greater blessings than you could without doing that. You'll say to God, I have this need in my family or in this country or among this people. This is what I'll covenant with you to do. I'll do this, this, and this, and this, and you do that for me, would you? That's what Jacob did. Jacob swore an oath to serve the God of Israel all his days, and he asked God to provide him with food and clothing, in other words, sufficient for his needs. And God did that. That was what Jacob did. The troubles of the past shall be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. Because you don't want to remember that time. It was a time when everything was on such a low level. And now the whole earth has ascended at level also to a paradisical state. So why remember that dark age before that when so many problems were in the earth? Why would you want to remember it? Or why would the Lord want to remember it? He's not going to hang on to the past and keep all your wrongdoing in front of him if you've repented of it. He's going to forgive you and forget it. And forgetting is part of being forgiven. The troubles of the past will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. See, I create new heavens and a new earth. We're on a different level now. There's a higher vibration here than before. The earth was jarred out of place, chapter 13, and then set in place in chapter 51. So when you look up in the sky, there's a different configuration of stars, I guess. A new earth because it's a paradisical state. Remember the way that Isaiah prophesies is to prophesy new versions of ancient events, and one of the ancient events was paradise. Former events shall not be remembered or recalled to mind, because everything is new now. When Isaiah ascended the seven levels into the presence of God in the ascension of Isaiah, a document that was translated into about six ancient languages, at some point in his ascension, he says the remembrance of that world where he came from was no longer there, it was forgotten. It means that this world will go up to one of those higher levels where the remembrance of this present earth that we live in now will no longer be remembered. It won't be worth remembering, except maybe as a lesson or something that taught us, something that got us to where we are now on this higher level. Rejoice then and be glad forever in what I create. See, I create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. Now, this creation motif here is a link to the creation of Jerusalem to the creation of the people. This is the level we're talking about. We're not talking about the present world or the Israel-Jacob level. We're talking about the Zion-Jerusalem level. He creates Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. On that level, there's only delight and joy. There's no more sadness. There's no more pain. There's no more tribulations and afflictions and oppression and bondage and deception and darkness. All those things are gone forever. Won't that be nice? The thing is, to get to that point, be glad forever. It's an everlasting happiness. I will delight in Jerusalem, rejoice in my people. It's my covenant people, covenant formula. No more shall be heard there the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. As there has been. In this world, there's weeping going on everywhere. There's distress, because there's violence and wickedness. No more shall there be infants alive but a few days or the aged who do not live out their years. Those who die young shall be a hundred years old, and those who fail to reach a hundred shall be accursed. Everything will be different. It will be like the time of the ancients, from Adam to Noah, Methuselah, 
The people lived almost a thousand years, and that's what we'll do again. That will be a new version of an ancient event. The dying of infants alive but a few days is a covenant curse. It comes upon the sins and iniquities of the people. The aged who do not live out their years. If you die young, you'll be a hundred years old. But dying, as Paul tells us, is not going to be like dying now, disintegration of the body. It'll be changing to a different state in the twinkling of an eye. Those who fail to reach a hundred shall be accursed. There may still be a cursed condition or covenant curses following some individuals. But you can see that if that is in fact the case, it's the opposite of what it is today, when the majority of people are in a sinful condition and are under covenant curse. Only a few are righteous and are covenant blessings. In this case, that situation will be turned around, at least that. Verse 21, when men build houses, they will dwell in them. When they plant vineyards, they will eat their fruit. Not like they have done now, or they are doing now. People build houses and other people live in them. They have to sell their own house for one reason or another, financial difficulties, or a contractor builds a house and someone else lives in it. Or you build your house yourself and you can't finish it because you run out of money. Or you work in someone's vineyard or orchard and it's not your own. It's uh, someone else's. Other people eat the fruit, mass production like today. It won't be like that. They shall not build so that others may dwell or plant so that others may eat. Whatever you build or plant will be your own and belong to you and your family. And you'll see people, your own families, eating those things and you'll get satisfaction from your labors. If you work for someone else or if you're a harling or if you're in difficult condition, you get no satisfaction. There's no spirit there. It's about the soul. You're just part of a big assembly line. You don't know where the products are going and who eats them. You don't see the satisfaction on their faces when they eat the fruits of your labors. The lifetime of my people shall be as the lifetime of a tree. Like I said, a thousand years. My chosen ones shall outlast the work of their hands. These chosen ones, who are they? The servants. Verse 9. Verse 9 parallels the chosen ones with the servants in a synonymous parallelism. The work of their hands is the servants' work. Their outlasting the work of their hands is not just referring to the planting of vineyards and building of houses. The works of their hands was also the ministry that they had to those on the lower level on the spiritual ladder. And they will outlast them because they are in a higher vibration, a higher spiritual level themselves. They shall not exert themselves in vain or bear children doomed for calamity, for they are the lineage of those blessed by the Lord and their posterity with them. Again, talking about literal children, but it could also be spiritual children, like the sons of the prophets. were not literally their sons, they were disciples. Sometimes when you taught people, when prophets taught, it was in vain. At any rate, there's both the literal interpretation that we can easily identify with and also more of an esoteric interpretation. Doomed for calamity. Calamity was always a consequence of covenant transgression. It was a curse, it's evil, the results of covenant breaking which often made the efforts of the righteous people in ministering to them vain, because people just wouldn't respond. They hardened their hearts, or they rejected the truth, or they mocked the things of God, or they simply forgot about God. People ministering to that category were ministering in vain. But they did anyway because everyone was given the chance to repent. They're the lineage of those blessed by the Lord, and their posterity with them. Posterity means covenant blessing, in contrast to the covenant curse, children doomed for calamity. And there's a special lineage involved here, a lineage like a dynasty that goes on and on and on down the generations. 
all the way through the millennium. It's like the lineage of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and Joseph, the lineage of King David, and of the prophets, the apostles. Those ones who come through and prove themselves to be saviors or servants and sons of God in that day, they are specially blessed, more especially blessed than the rest. They and their children or their posterity with them. Their blessing occurs upon the heads of their children. In this case, it's not the iniquities of the fathers upon the heads of the children, the third and fourth generation, but the blessings of the fathers upon the heads of the children down the generations. Before they call, I will reply. While they are yet speaking, I will respond. In contrast to the others who called too late, or didn't call with sufficient faith, or called when they were not worthy, or whatever. In this case, they call, and the Lord answers them immediately. The group that we've just been talking about a little while ago, they're calling and they're not getting immediate answers, because they still need to go through more repentance, through more refining. But when you finally get through that process, then you call, and the Lord answers just, that quick. There's nothing to prevent the Lord at that point from answering you immediately. Verse 25, The wolf and the lamb will graze alike, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. As for the serpent, dust shall be its food. There shall be no harm or injury done throughout my holy mountain, says the Lord. These are some word links to chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, which is looking forward to the millennial age of peace. But what's happening in that millennial age? The wolf is an unclean animal, and the lamb is a clean animal, they will graze alike. While the wolf has been eating meat, now he's going to graze. Same with the lion eating straw like the ox. The unclean lion becoming clean like the ox, clean animal. Which implies on an esoteric or metaphorical or allegorical level that these animals, the unclean, will become like the clean. Or, in other words, those who are not the covenant people now will become the covenant people of the Lord. They will all become his covenant people. The clean representing his covenant people and the unclean representing the heathen. As for the serpent, dust shall be its food. I'm not sure how to interpret that one. In Isaiah, you have two serpent types. You have the good serpent representing the Messiah, symbolizing the Messiah, as we've seen in chapter 14. The brazen serpent that Moses held up in the wilderness that was an antidote to the fiery flying serpents that killed the people. This implies that the serpent that was harmful is going to be reduced to an innocent state or an innocuous or harmless condition. It's not going to bite people. It's going to eat dust. Dust meaning chaos. Dust is a chaos motif. It's reduced to a harmless condition, like a worm. There shall be no harm or injury done throughout my holy mountain or throughout the promised land or his holy nation. And it is a holy nation now. Not just my mountain, period, but my holy mountain, because all who live there will be holy or sanctified, says the Lord. As in chapter 35, where it says the way of return will be called the way of holiness, the way of return to Zion. The whole land will become holy, because the people who dwell there will be holy. 